You know what that means, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to Foley's Pod. Welcome to the show. I am Conrad Thompson, and joining us, as always, of course, the hardcore legend himself, the Hall of Famer on location in the Foley family home, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? Doing great, especially uh, this is the first time I think we've uh, like officially had Mr. In Your House as our Foley's Pod theme song, right? I can't think of a better way to get the show started. Really? I mean, goodness. And, uh, I think by popular demand is correct. Yeah. We, I was in the same location, my old house, uh, three weeks ago and, uh, we had a, a run in by my mom. And if anyone hears something in the, in the background, they're like, what is that? That's my mom watching outlander episodes <laughs> on, on Netflix, she just lo- loves that. And I, you know, I, I've watched every episode with her during the pandemic. So, uh, when I come over to visit, we just turn it on and we start on a, another season. So apologies for the less than perfect acoustics, but, uh, uh, you got to do the best you can with the hand you're dealt sometimes. Uh, you know what? I love it. It adds to the charm of, uh, the Foley family. And that's what we're doing here today. We're celebrating your great career and man, one of the, uh, the more interesting times in your storied career happened over in Japan. I think most people remember your time in Japan best for your death matches. Would that be fair to say? 100% accurate and completely fair. So let's talk about how it all got started. Of course, we know what happened, uh, for the IWA, the king of the death matches. That's our topic today. It went down in 1995. Um, Chat me up. I, I think the liaison was probably Victor Quinones, but how does that happen? Man, it's, that's been, I can't remember. I do remember they reached out to me one time when I uh, left WCW and I just, I was not interested at that time. Uh, I had a good working relationship with ECW. Uh, I planned to do the independence and uh, I wanted to, yeah, I had this crazy idea at the time. It seemed crazy, but a lot of men and women have done it since then of trying to make myself a more valuable entity without the, the nationwide TV. And I didn't know if, um, getting involved in deathmatch wrestling, um, would do that for me. And, uh, I think there was something to it as evidenced by the fact that on my own, you know, 80 biography, Mr. McMahon said that it was, you know, it was basically a strike against me. He thought it was kind of. <laughs> demeaning and not something they were interested at all in. So it was not until I heard that Terry Funk, and that's uh, obviously we know Funk with an N, so I'm not dropping F-bombs upon the, uh, when he signed with IWA Japan, I reached out to, I think it was to Victor and I said, I wanted in because, um, I thought going over there and having a chance to wrestle Terry Funk uh, would be an opportunity, you know, to work with my, my, my idol. And also I just sensed, and I've used this phraseology on my, um, on the, you know, the Foley, the nice day tour shows, uh, that nobody was going to ask me for the ball back before I was done running with it. Right. Nobody pulled the carpet out from underneath me. Just when I thought I had something going. 
And I also thought that it would give me a chance to prove to the wrestling business, but just as importantly, maybe more importantly to myself that I was capable of, of drawing money in the wrestling business, putting butts in seats. And I thought, uh, going over there, uh, would give me the chance. Now, that being said, my first, with my first tour, there was no guarantee I'd be asked back. And during my, I guess, 15, 16 months with IWA, I saw many, a, uh, foreigner or Gaijin, as we say, uh, come over for one tour and that was it. So, uh, I was kind of embarking with a lot of hope and an idea of what I wanted to do. Well, let's mention too, you had worked with Terry Funk before, uh, yeah, yeah. I know in 94, you worked in, uh, in ECW, but it's a, probably a different thing to work Terry Funk in Philadelphia versus Japan, right? Yeah, it is because, uh, you know, the ECW brand was so strong. Like they were going to, at that point, ECW was selling out the, uh, the arena slash, you know, the bingo hall. Uh, and we were not doing well in other places. And that was going to be the case, whether I was on the card or not, like I was a value, I thought it was a valuable addition to ECW, but, uh, they were going to be okay with or without me. And I thought that maybe this IWA Japan promotion would be my chance to make a, you know, put my personal stamp, uh, on a, on a young upstart promotion. It's, uh, it's such an interesting concept these death matches you know you had been as we've explained in ecw in 94 and 95 and we've even talked about you working barbed wire matches but boy a death match in japan that's just a whole nother level uh, are you comfortable with that or how did you get comfortable with that do you have a lot of questions or is it just we'll figure it out i guess <laughs> Well, this is where I have to quote Mr. Miyagi again. And by the way, for those people wondering, well, let's deal with his bottom teeth. It's a well-known fact that I lost those bad boys in the cell match. Uh, they were uh, put, <laughs> put back in and began to rot out. And I thought, all right, I, it's, it reminds me of uh, the famous wrestler line, like, I would do it, but would my character do it? And in this case, I was like, yeah, I McFoley don't would have rotted out, you know, gray and blue teeth, but Santa wouldn't. And so that's the reason why I made the decision to, uh, I pulled one myself, the pliers and I had the dentist take out, uh, the other one, but I'm, I thought it'd be a perfect, uh, time to just reinforce the fact that I am in fact, hardcore. And I think that the, the smile. It's a good reinforcement of that. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, uh, repeat the question, please. Well, I just wanted to know about death matches. You know, how do you oh, get yeah. comfortable? Yeah. Oh yeah. I said, I was going to quote Mr. Miyagi who said, uh, you stand on one side of the road, you're fine. Stand on the other, you're fine. Stand in the middle. You get squashed like a grape. And what that means to me is you either do <laughs> death matches or you don't, but there's no halfway. So if I was going to do it, I was going to commit to having the best <laughs> death matches I could. And I was going to gear up for them, uh, psychologically, I guess, uh, at that time, you know, I'd have to go back to like my matches with, uh, Vader where, uh, I mean, every time I got in the ring with Vader, it felt like, uh, for me, like my thriller in Manila, um, 
And so people around us, that incredible Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali fight from uh, the Philippines in 75, I think. So, um, yeah, I, I approached these matches the same way that whether there was a uh, hundred people, which was sometimes the case or 2,500 people, which was really on the high end. That was like our big show at Corican hall, every tour that I was going to, you know, try to tear the house down. And I don't want to say reinvent deathmatch wrestling, but like create a surreal artistic spectacle out of something that some people refer to as garbage wrestling. I'm just curious, you know, this is not the normal type of wrestling. This is not what, um, your trainer ever thought you would wind up doing. And now <laughs> here you are yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, your, your coworkers, your, the, the other guys in the industry, do they reach out or do you ask and say, what the hell are you doing cactus? Or are you just dead set on, man, I got to do this. It's Terry funk. It's a bucket list thing. Yeah. And then as you get there, are you sort of dictated to, or does the promotion allow you to say, what if we tried this? Can you be creative or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I talk about having, uh, the football and no one asking for it back, uh, it was really obvious within the first couple days, maybe even from the very first, uh, match that we, we kicked off the, the, the January 95 tour at Cork and Hall, I believe with a uh, a tag team match, me and Tracy Smothers against Terry and maybe, uh, Shoji Nakamaki. It might've been, uh, uh, Ono whose first name is escaping me, but it was, uh, definitely Terry. And, uh, I I'm hard pressed to think for sure who that, uh, person was, but after that match, um, uh, Mr. Asano, who was the, uh, owner of IWA, who was worth between. 500 million and a billion dollars, depending on what the Japanese real estate market was. He was really open to it. And he also had this chance. Here's this, uh, ultra rich guy. And he was basically creating some of these death matches. Like he would just think of the most punishing, <laughs> uh, uh, stipulation possible barbed wire bricks, you know, barbed wire was a given in Japan, you know, take down the no rope barbed wire. Deathmatch was like the staple of the <laughs> the deathmatch diet diet, and uh, you know, as I reinforced um, on my tour, like when people say real barbed wire, my answer is, brother, this was Japan. You know, they're not into any of the, the illusions. Uh, they they really wanted the, the that sense of realism, and with so many competing uh, promotions, like you had to make your mark somehow. And it was also a big, you know, it was also a culture that accepted that warrior ethos. Uh, I know I'm kind of rambling here because I've had two uh, coast to coast flights in the last 24 hours. So uh, stop me if I'm rambling. Um, but that was one of my misgivings with ECW. For those of you who remember the, the hardcore promos I did, the anti-hardcore, hardcore promos and the hardcore promos is that I did think the ECW fans, especially in ECW, were a little too demanding and not as appreciative as they could have been. Uh, overall, they were great. <laughs> but, you, you know, I go back to the examples I wrote about where JT Smith did a dive and didn't work out well. His head swelled up like a uh, balloon and the crowd was shedding, you know, you effed up. And I remember thinking, man, that's some cold stuff, even for Philadelphia. 
And uh, the reaction was more respectful, less like being an animal in a zoo. Uh, and, uh, and I, I really thrived on that atmosphere, uh, from the fans of Japan. Let's talk about your first death match. You wrote about it in your book. It happened at Cork and hall. It's a, a famous wrestling venue over in Japan, but I think it's worth mentioning. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get the backlighting out of here. Uh, so if I'm jostling around with this thing, uh, just, you know, just forgive me. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Rick Farkin Hall, a, a rather famous, uh, venue there for wrestling. But what's interesting, I think a lot of American fans may not know it's a 2200 seat auditorium on the fifth floor of a Japanese office building. Isn't that crazy? Used- yeah, it's great. You wouldn't expect that, especially seeing footage, understanding this is in an office building on the fifth floor. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, it's not unusual. You write in your book for three different promoters to use the hall on the very same day. Yeah. And when you get there, obviously, you know, that selling merch is going to be a big part of your payoff and boy, the, uh, the Japanese fans are lining up to see you and you even write in your book. Hey, since we're going to do no rope barbed wire, meaning we're taking down where the ropes were. Now it's going to be barbed wire. I know I'm going to take big bumps into it. I've got this big spot planned for a big clothesline. This is years before Mr. Sacco. I'm going to put a big tube sock on my arm and boy, that'll protect me. And you find out in your very first match. Well, (laughs) didn't really help all that much. You have two angry gashes in your arm. You describe in your book and you even write. Uh, I don't have a medical degree, but I find it strange how some gashes never bleed and some small cuts seem to bleed forever. So even though you've got these gashes, it's not pouring blood, but are you a little panicked seeing what's happening here in your first one? Just seeing the white meat that, yeah, sometimes you're lacerating. I'm like looking, uh, for the couple of the the scars on my forearm, you know, they've just like lay open where you, you know, just, yeah, they, I, uh, white, you know, that's what I would describe it as the white meat of the, uh, the wound. And, uh, you know, I always kept a level head. Remember, uh, you know, it was, uh, only six months earlier, five months earlier, uh, no, no, 10 months earlier where I'd lost my year in Munich in case you forgot what that looked like. There's a good one. And that's a good yeah. one there just to reinforce my hardcore, uh, you know, status. Uh, so yeah, I mean, by that time, Conrad, I don't want to sound all rugged and stuff, but, uh, I, I, you know, I accepted from the onset that, uh, the physical style was going to lead to some issues, uh, physically and that I was going to have to work through them. Now issues would be like, you know, like a, uh, you know, a, a stretched or a, a torn, uh, ligament and you know minor breaks and contusions and bruises and all those things and then you take it obviously a step further when you see that you know the gashes but i would say the best example of someone performing under that type of (laughs) but i don't know pressure is probably not the word uh it is when sabu uh and terry funk had any had a barbed wire match in ecw and uh uh the wire opened up Sabu in just, uh, you know, a way that would have had, you know, many, uh, almost everyone rushing immediately for the exit and it, almost nobody, uh, capable of finishing that match. And, uh, t- to me, it's one of those great unheralded moments of guts, you know, maybe psychosis as well. I'm talking about the mental condition, not the great Mexican luchador, 
um, where he just, he literally sent Fonzie, uh, Bill Alfonso to the back, came back with a roll of, uh, uh, athletic tape and just wrapped it up around his tights till the match was over. And so that's kind of in your, it's almost in your DNA. It's almost instilled in you when you have that type of respect for the business that you're going to get across the finish line by any means necessary. And so I knew going in, you know, that I was going to, I wasn't going to wander out in the middle of the road. Mr. Miyagi had warned me against that. I was uh, really committed to having the best matches I could. And that if an injury took place, by God, I was going to have to deal with it. Well, so here it is your first one. You, uh, tear your arm down to the white meat and Meltzer would write that the crowd was announced at 1,370, but this promotion usually pads it. So it was probably under a thousand nah, I, I, part of this. That I, didn't, that I would argue, I would argue that I, I, I don't doubt they've got great sources, but look, yeah, I'm not someone prone to hyperbole and, uh, it looked nearly full to me. Well, either way, you said at the start of this, it wasn't about crowd sizing. You were going to do this, whether there was a hundred folks there and sometimes there were, or it was a stadium show. This was something yes. you wanted to do. So it almost sounds as if Mick, you're not doing this for the money. You're doing this for the experience. I'm doing it to make a difference. Uh, and because at that point, it, just as we talked about beyond the mat a few years ago, where I said that was going to be my, you know, my stamp on the business. Uh, I felt like, you know, I was going to make a difference in this, uh, little world and, uh, be the best death match wrestler I could. I mean, I was making three <laughs> K a week. Uh, and that's actually for 10 days because, you know, there'd be uh three travel days basically. Uh, so you're, you're not getting rich. I mean, it's almost guaranteed that you do say, uh, you know, you do a 10 day tour every month. Uh, and, uh, so that you're basically making 36 grand to come home in really rough shape. So no, you're, you're not doing even adjusted for inflation. That would be, you know, five or six grand now, probably, probably six grand say. And still, even then you're talking about a $60,000 a year, you know, salary to do some really dangerous things like uh, life threatening things. So. I don't, I mean, I did have the wife and two children and I did have to pay a mortgage, but I could have done that by doing Indies at that time. You know, I was in that $500 a night range, um, seven fifty for the big Philadelphia shows at the ECW arena. So I could have made almost as much, uh, and I was, you know, I was fairly in demand as an independent. So I was pulling down that, you know, one G a week plus some, uh, some gimmicks. So, uh, again, just to reiterate, it was, uh, it was not, it was to some degree about the money. Some, some extent, it's always a little bit about the money, but it was far more about believing my own personal stamp. And like I said, having a chance to prove to the wrestling world and to myself that I was capable of making a difference and drawing money tip over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Uh, so Mick, let's jump back into it. You're not done with this tour. That's just step one. Now uh, the yep. next match that everybody's raving about is January 8th. It's a barbed wire match. That's going to be taped by the IWA. It's you versus Terry Funk. And one of the readers of the observer writes, Dave, it's one of the best matches he's ever seen in his life. 
And one of the crazy highlights feature you taking a suplex face first on barbed wire. And then you light a chair on fire with kerosene and hit each other with it. <laughs> to the point where Terry Funk receives second degree burns when the plastic <laughs> melts from the chair and gets on his skin. Uh, Funk is then going to light the branding iron on fire, hit you in the stomach with it. And then your throat gets caught in the barbed wire. Uh, the wire will not hold your body weight. It collapses and rips uh, the skin from your fingers. Is this just another day at the office in Japan, Mick? No, this is pretty special. Um, and one of the highlights, uh, this match in particular was one of the, the thing I look forward to talking about the most when I did the, uh, the nice day tour. Uh, if you remember when you saw in Huntsville, you know, I re just, it's the match I'm proudest of. It really is. And I've had a lot of time to think about that over the years. And I keep coming back to that match because of the lengths that both Terry and I were willing to go to kind of put this little promotion on the map. So there were 150, 150 fans. That was, I didn't count it, but I, that's what I, uh, estimated. Um, but we knew that the, um, Japanese media contingent was out there in force. And that was like our TV. That was like a TV taping for us. So maybe only 150 people would see this match live, but within two days time, uh, because of the nature of the, the, the business over there, uh, up to half a million diehard fans would see what we did in a brilliant full color. And so Terry and I, I believe both looked at this as a way to put that little upstart promotion on the map. Um, it, it was, you know, it's just, uh, I find so many of my favorite, um, and biggest moments in wrestling were surrounded by like a surreal quality that would, uh, hold true for the, um, hell in a cell match with the undertaker, which I believe we will do a 25th anniversary special on in, uh, June of 2023. Is that safe to say? Yes. Uh, but this one was, uh, you know, they're like, it, man, it was like, you couldn't write this stuff because people reject it as not being believable. Um, but we're in buildings that are hovering around 40 degrees Fahrenheit because we are technically working the Southern part of Japan. And I, I mean, I, Victor's not here to tell me why the buildings were heated. But I speculated that someone thought, hey, southern part of Japan, no need to heat the buildings. Let me tell you, I'm not a geographic expert, but it's pretty freaking cold in the suburbs of Tokyo yes. uh, in the beginning of January. And so you can actually see your breath. Um, I'm in a situation where uh, there's, um, uh, I, I, I usually say there were three gaijins, me, Tracy Smothers, and... Um, uh, big kid uh, from uh, Winnipeg, uh, Leather. Oh, man, how could I forget his real name? Great guy. Was on every single tour. He, he wrestled as Leatherface after the original Leatherface. Uh, Corporal Kirstner did a, a year in jail for punching someone in the face in Japan, which is a no-no. Um, and so uh, there were actually, I think, two other. I think the Hangmen were a tag team. So I believe there were five of us huddled around a kerosene heater and a couple of the, uh, uh, luchadors were in that dressing room as well, just huddled around a, a kerosene heater, trying to keep warm. I'm not in a position where I can even, uh, 
uh, see Terry Funk, let alone talk to him because he's on the other side of the building. Sometimes you shared dressing rooms on those Japanese tours. I mean, you were on the same bus, so it wasn't total kayfabe. Um, because, uh, uh, bigger promotions have separate, uh, buses for uh, Japanese wrestlers and the, and the foreigners, but our case, you know, we were working on a shoestring budget. So we all traveled in the same bus, got out, ate at the same truck stops. But in this occasion, you know, we were in separate dressing rooms, did not have a chance to see each other or communicate. So not only did we call it on the fly, but I think we all both had to accept that despite, uh, I had to believe that despite the small crowd, that it was one of the most important matches of our lives. It's amazing to think that this promotion goes from you working in front of a few hundred fans. Yeah. And then Tarzan Goto jumps ship from the rival FMW. He's going to join the IWA. So that means Goto, Funk, uh, Cactus Jack, the Headhunters. This group is now going to go out not in front of 300 fans, but book a 40,000 seat Kawasaki <laughs> stadium. Yeah. This sounds like the worst idea ever. I mean, e even our old pal from the UWF, Mr. Abrams wouldn't think of going from a few hundred fans to thin tens of thousands of fans. I think he would. And I think he did uh plan on it by booking the MGM grand hotel and casino. Not only did he book it, he had to make someone believe that he was capable of putting people in that building and he did uh, up to 200 of them by my hand count i had a chance to see the audience up close yeah when i did a, a lumberjack match with snooker that ended up in a double count <laughs> it's a crazy stuff in your career have you know lumberjack. <laughs> what conrad no, there were more lumberjacks than people in the stands <laughs> not only that i had to recruit my own lumberjacks so I think we had two female wrestlers, a couple of little people, and I had people just say, no, they weren't going to do it. I was like, Herb needs <laughs> lumberjacks. So we had a ragged uh, group. And then, uh, as Snook and I are waiting into the, <laughs> the, the, you know, the first level off the floor, Brian B. Brian Blair is like, what are you doing? <laughs> I yell, it's a count out. And he said, there are, you can't do a count out. <laughs> He's actually saying this to me. Like, as we're speaking, it wasn't like whispering. He's like, oh, you, you can't do a count out in a lumberjack match. And as I'm fighting with Snooker, I yell, it's a herb show. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> so I had been in uh, front of some awfully large arenas uh, with a very limited number of people. And this was a case where, you know, it was a small gymnasium. You know, maybe it would have been packed out at a, a couple thousand people. But those 150 people in their winter coats were... uh they were either diehard wrestling fans or they didn't want the local Yakuza to know that <laughs> they were not attending a match they'd been forced to buy tickets to because I believe there was some persuasion oh. uh, among the local business owners where they, whether or not they showed up was up to them, but doggone it, they were buying those tickets. Yeah, yeah, there was. I wasn't aware of the extent to which the, uh, the Yakuza was, um, involved in the wrestling trade. Um, but, uh, I believe they were. So it's amazing that that happens in January and clearly the, the tapes of you and funk go so viral before that was really a word over there that they're able to book a baseball stadium and you go back 
August 18th, 1995. And you would write, we'd been on the road for eight days and had traveled via the Japanese bullet train into the wee hours of the morning. <laughs> we were awakened after about five hours sleep and took the two hour bus trip from a section of Tokyo into Yokohama. I stepped off the bus in front of the dilapidated baseball stadium and knew right away that I was in trouble. It was only 10 in the morning, but the temperature was already over 90. The humidity was almost unbearable. So take us back. You're a man in a foreign land. You're a little weary from all the travel. And this is polar opposite. Last time you were here, you're freezing your ass off. Yep. And now you're inside and now you're outside and it's sweltering at 10 AM. What's going through your mind as you walk through this dilapidated <laughs> baseball stadium? Yeah, it had to be dilapidated because, you know, they couldn't get clearance to use the, the explosive ordinances. I think that's the right terminology. You had to use a, uh, a stadium that was going to allow you to do those things. Right. Uh, and FMW had history of drawing big crowds for these wild stipulation matches. Um, I gotta tell you, I mean, I was, um, I, I was in this case, I, we bit trepidatious, uh, because, uh, now look, you know, I want to be completely honest, uh, with our audience and I think they appreciate that, but I do ask people to read between the lines. Uh, so like, uh, there are certain, like I, you will not hear me talk about a blade on uh, although I apparently I just did talk about it. I think I called it a small, sharp implement of destruction, you know, yes. in my book. And then you allow yes. people to surmise what they will about that. Um, so let's just say I had reason to believe I'd be in the final match, which would involve the, uh, explosives. And, uh, when they took us out to the outfield before the fans came in, maybe around, uh, noon. Uh, they detonated <laughs> the barbed wire boards. It's thought, you know, it's supposed to look like you land on the boards and that, that, that causes the detonation, but actually there's somebody up in the loge area, uh, the munitions people, uh, FMW used <laughs> special effects people from the motion picture world. We use munitions people. So uh, their stuff looked amazing and clearly there's some fallout, but in this case, you know, uh, it looked as painful, absolutely as painful. Uh, it felt as painful, painful as it looked, but when they detonated those explosives, it sounded, I mean, it sounded like a howitzer going off, you know, boom. And you could hear it echoing. And I just looked and um, I think my voice rose about three octaves. I'm out there with uh, Victor Tinotas, Mr. Asano. I don't know who else was out there. And I said, there's no way there's no way. And then Terry Funk says, oh yeah, that, that looks good. But, uh, I think you ought to have another explosive right in the middle. Prior to that, there was one on each end. And I said, right. Terry, if we have explosives on each end and in the middle, where are we going to land? And he goes, oh, no, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And I thought to myself. I don't think it's going to be fine. And, uh, the physical fallout as a result of that was, uh, uh, evidence that uh, my intuition was correct. You wrote in your book that Terry smiled and said, no, no cactus. It'll be fine. Trust me. I did <laughs> and later wished I hadn't. <laughs> this is, uh, that's just what we're talking about. We're <laughs> in the middle of a baseball stadium. Yeah. In the infield. There's three wrestling rings. As you look around, 
It is a dilapidated old abandoned looking baseball stadium. It's very hot. And the promoter is going to show you a C4 demonstration Mm -hmm. on top of barbed wire boards. Yes. And I think back to your training and Mr. (laughs) Dimitri. We're going to land in a barbed wire board. (laughs) He made it clear, you know, he knew I liked the wild stuff and, uh, you know, he spoke in parables and, uh, he made it clear that, uh, you know, if I wanted to create wild, the paragraphs on my own, that was up to him, but doggone it, you know, we were going to learn the alphabet first. And we did. Um, and then he was, you know, he understood that, uh, I liked that, uh, you know, the, the, the crazy stuff. And, but as long as I had the mechanics down the basics, so I could work with anybody, um, he was, he was okay with that, but it is something you get to, you know, you get a feel for as you go and you make mistakes. And the great thing about the mistakes, Conrad is if you make them, by God, they're right there on video. So, uh, yeah, if you're going to make mistakes in wrestling or life, uh, have, have a camera on. Let me ask this. You know, you have uh, taken issue over the years when guys like Ric Flair, and of course you guys are on great terms these days, but once upon a time, he called you a glorified stuntman. Yeah. And I thought that was unfair, but now in cases like this, you are kind of doing stunts. Are you not? I mean, this match, well, this tournament, keep in mind, uh, when you're out there, you're not just a stuntman, you are your own coordinator. You are sound effects, man. You are your own publicity machine because you're cutting your promos and, uh, never more had I felt like, you know, the success of a promotion hinged on my contribution. So, uh, on behalf of all the, uh, unheralded stuntmen out there, and I've got this on, on good authority because I have guys tell me, thank you. You know, thank you for representing us. That's certainly something I did, I did receive far more glory than the, than the men and women who don't, uh, I think now is there a, is there a category in the Academy Awards for best stunt work? I know it's been discussed. I don't know if it's out there, but it is, uh, that's, you know, part of what I brought to the table, but I, uh, I, I tried my best to make my bumps look like a, a realistic part of a match. You know, I talked, uh, I think I've talked in the past about how I admired people who did what I call fantastic bumps, Yes, but not as based in reality. You know, just for example, you know, the, 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 the stairs bump, which I did not invent, but I think I popularized. Yes. That's I am. See, if somebody's going to take the stairs, I believe they take the stairs in a similar way to they take the turnbuckle. And I have never seen a human being, and I could be wrong. There could be video evidence. I've never seen a human being take a turnbuckle by going down to their knees and hitting their shoulder on the second turnbuckle. Right. Yet that's the way almost everyone takes the stairs. And I thought, okay, you know, I did, I did tinker a few times with hitting it, uh, you know, uh, backwards, like you would the turnbuckle and, and having my own momentum carry me over the stairs. But basically what you saw, what you got, what you saw, what you got were, were 100% legit. That's me running as hard as I can at those stairs, hitting them as far as I can with the upper thigh and having a realistic, um, result of that collision, which is, you know, you know, my body, my, 
my momentum is stopped immediately and I go sailing over it. And that's, uh, it, that's consistent, I think, with what a real life collision of that nature would be. So I did try to make them realistic. And I, but I also understood that when you have stipulations, which I would call the toys, the procession of the, the toys where you just try to make uh, during the course of the match, you try to up the ante as to what you are dealing with. And so instead of bringing out a, a barbed wire bat or a table or a chair or what have you from a seemingly endless supply underneath the ring, uh, I would use what those stipulations afforded me. So whether that was the, the barbed wire, um, the thumbtacks, I would try to make them as realistic as possible. Um, and I would just try to make it super easy for those fans to suspend disbelief. And I think I was pretty successful with that. Uh, very successful at that. And I do want to ask about, you know, you're wearing a lot of hats here. You know, I, you're not just doing these crazy matches before the show starts. You're working the gimmick tables, brother. Uh, uh, Rock and Roll Express. <laughs> Tell me about what this is like, because it is crazy to imagine, you know, just hours before you're going to take all these crazy moves and risks and circumstances that are just beyond description. You're behind a folding table, selling cactus Jack t-shirts, sweating your ass off. Oh yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, like I, I understand my first match is going to be with, I know it's going to be with Terry Gordy and right. Terry went, you know, from being one of the top, I would say, and I think I said this in a previous show, top 10 workers in the entire business, especially as far as working a super strong style was concerned. And then he had an overdose of pills when he was working for all Japan on a plane, I uh, believe his heart start I, technically, you know, I don't want to venture out into, you know, an exaggeration, but I believe he was technically dead for a short time. And when he came back, he was never quite the same, got himself into, you know, really amazing physical condition. Uh, you know, and he had cardio, he could go for days, but he was never the same mentally. And so I know I've got the, you know, the, the barbed wire board. We do have barbed wire boards in every, all three matches that day had barbed wire boards in them. Um, but the first one was accompanied by the 10,000 thumbtacks in a shallow box. And the second one with uh, Nakamaki was also the bed of nails. And then as we go to the final with Terry, it's, you know, not only the barbed wire boards, but they're laced with explosives and the ring is set to <laughs> implode at the 10 minute mark. Uh, so I know I've got a lot ahead of me, especially as I said, for those of you who want to read through the lines that I had reason to believe I was going to be in there for that final match, but doggone it, you know, I, like I said, I, I've got a mortgage to pay and this is the biggest show we've ever had. And I have to, I can't just bring home <laughs> technically I made $425 for that day of work. Uh, never saw a nickel of any royalties, uh, until the, uh, uh, the, the juggalos, they, they, they threw a little extra, uh, cash my way because they had, uh, done the strangle mania thing. Uh, but so you had to supplement that income and I'm out there selling shirts to the point where I actually hear my music playing and Asano comes up, cactus on 
go. And I'm like, hold on, just one more thing. And I like it in my book to say, imagine this was boxing. And they're like, you know, Mike Tyson, we're expecting Mike. He's just taking a couple last Polaroids at the gimmick table. He'll be ready. Minute. And this might be, you know, where I remember what I want to remember. But in my mind, at least, uh, I had uh, some yen <laughs> paper currency sticking out of my cowboy boots uh, when I did that first match with Terry Gordy. It's like, I'll be right there. And I, I hit the ring fresh from the gimmick table. So that was just a reality. You want to, you know, you, you know, you were, you, you, like I said, you're, you're making 30 K for an entire year's worth of carnage. You have to supplement it somehow. It's just amazing to me to think about. And I do want to talk about the, uh, the Terry Gordy circumstance because Terry Gordy still a name here, despite maybe not being the wrestler he was, he still has a reputation. So yeah. I understand why he's booked. But apparently you guys did a press conference earlier in the week to try to hype this thing up. And during the course of this, he recalled that you guys wrestled for global back in 91. And yeah. And he says in a loud and clear voice, Jack, I dropped you on your head once and I can do it again. Yeah. And now you have a chance to respond and you say something like that was different. Gordy, tell me what you're going to do when you step into that ring at Kawasaki stadium and see those 10,000 thumbtacks. I'm going to turn your ass into the world's largest pin cushion. Yeah. And you're right in your book. Terry's eyes seemed to grow as wide as saucers. And after the press conference, he approached me, bro. I didn't know anything about no thumbtacks. <laughs> How does this happen? I guess he didn't get the memo, you know, <laughs> bro. He had that deep, mournful voice, bro. Nobody told me anything about any thumbtacks. And I think I said, it'll be okay. You know, it will be okay. And so, yeah, I'm in this unique position where I now am leading the match with, uh, with one of the great workers, you know, that's ever, you know, been to the Japan and, uh, I have to do him justice as well as myself. And by no means is it a classic match it was less than 10 minutes, but it was pretty constant. And, uh, the idea of the, the, the 10th, the, you know, we'd had the thumbtack matches before I was in the original. I'm like, in some ways I'm like to the thumbtacks, what the, uh, the guy from the UK who released starlings into the United States is like, <laughs> I brought it over to North America with me because I was in the first ever push pin misery death match. It wasn't called a thumbtack match, push pin misery, uh, death match where I guess oddly, or maybe ironically, I was the one guy in that tag match who did not take a bump in the tax. I still, you know, suffered from my art, but, uh, I laid out that match and it didn't result in me taking the bump, but I would go on to take many more, uh, over there during my time in Japan. And this was, um, you know, we're all used to, you know, the thumbtacks coming out and, uh, you know, a, in a, uh, canvas bag, but this was a case where all 10,000, I mean, it looked like 10,000 was advertised as 10,000. I didn't actually count them. It's right. more difficult to count the tax than it is, uh, the people at a herb show at the MGM. Um, but I just knew I had to end up in that box in a creative manner. I just want to go back to the, the match in global, which was a turning point of sorts for me because I was trying to work a more serious style than I had in WCW as kind of trying to reinvent myself as, um, as a main event 
guy as opposed to a mid-card kind of pseudo or, you know, honestly, I wasn't even mid-card. I was lower, lower mid-card, uh, top of the bottom <laughs> uh, type of guy in WCW during my first run. And I wanted to, um, man, I was really influenced by the matches I watched up to 12 hours a day. No exaggeration. You should have my wife on sometime. She'll vouch that we had a little 13 inch TV, the, uh, the kind of, uh, the cassette, <laughs> the VCR slash TV, 13 yeah. TV. And I would watch up to 12 hours of Japanese wrestling a day. I mean, that's on the extreme end, but at least a couple hours every day. Um, and I, re you know, I liked, I mean, the, the Brody Hanson, uh, 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 Gordy stuff, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Of course, I idolized Terry. Terry was my fa absolute favorite because I don't have scientific proof of this, but Terry was not afraid to wear his heart on his sleeve. Right. Like uh, to this day, I, I know to each their own, but the strong style where guys trade chops or slaps to the face and act like something that does hurt doesn't hurt which seems counterproductive to what we should yeah. be doing as professional wrestlers like uh, japan's a real stoic culture but terry managed to break through and become i mean i'm not just he was an iconic part of japanese culture we you maybe use that iconic work too often but terry was a, he was part of people's childhoods because all japan was seen all japan and new japan were incredibly popular there in the uh, 70s and 80s and terry was the top gaijin baby face foreigner that's not a if you refer to yourself as that it's not a it's not a a, a smear that's what we referred to ourselves as and i think he was that top guy partially because he wasn't afraid to let his emotions show he would cry during interviews he would sell in a way where he would actually like look to the crowd and plead for help. Dusty did the same thing. And in that stoic culture where everyone was trying to be more manly, he became the top guy partially because he tapped into, you know, those emotions that weren't so usually associated with tough guys in Japan. And I've speculated that's part of the reason why I'm drawn to the, uh, the, the women's wrestling because they are more in keeping with that wearing your heart on your sleeve. You know, they just don't, don't just do the look of disbelief after a false finish. Like, you know, we have women actively crying tears, uh, the way that Terry did. And, uh, that appeals to me, you know, I like that aspect of wrestling. And to me, nobody did it better than Terry Funk. It's, uh, it's so fascinating to hear about this match with Terry Gordy, because I know you and, and all hardcore wrestling fans hold him in such high regard, but yeah. you wrote in the book that you're concerned about the weakness of Terry's punches at this point. So you yeah. approach him before the match and say, Terry, I want this match to look good. And I think maybe to play it safe, you should just hit me your hardest out there. Yeah. He wants to confirm. And he says, are you sure, bro? And you replied, yeah, Terry, I am. And he would continue. Terry looked at me sadly, and I could tell the words that followed were difficult for him to say. Bro, just help me out there. Yeah. Now this is some real pressure. You're trying to put on one of your most important performances of your career and you're with a guy you really respect, but now you've got the task of not only do you need to look good, but he needs to look good. And he's concerned that he might not look like the, the corny mold. Yeah. So, I mean, I want, 
I want to have a good match. I have reason to speculate that not only will I be in that final match, but that I might win it, read between the lines. <laughs> I'm just not comfortable. Right. Uh, you know, but just read between the lines. I, I believe there's an opportunity that uh, possibly I might win, but I also want, I want Terry to come away from that match with the fans thinking they saw the Gordy of old and the odd that, whoa, whoa, that was, that was some bright stuff there. Um, oddly, Gordy's punches were the ones that I would say were like the classic wrestling punch. And forgive me if I've used this, uh, man, uh, I say like in, you know, MMA boxing, the best punches come with about this much distance. You know, there's some boom, you know, whereas in wrestling, we don't throw it from here to here. We throw it from here and Terry would like, <laughs> let's figure bring it way back. Almost like he was drawing a bow use that left hand too. And then bam, he would deliver that, uh, just incredible. I don't know why the adjective popping up is delicious, but he's <laughs> doing a delicious punch. And after the accident, the punches really suffered in a way. It almost seemed like he was a guy trying to figure out pro wrestling instead of being a master at it. And I did not want. I wanted my match to look realistic. I wanted to be good. I thought, uh, you know, the flaw in Gordy's punching game might, uh, make that a challenge. And so I just wanted to make sure it looked good by telling him to lay it in brother. Well, he does. And boy, these punches are not uh, quote unquote working punches. He busts <laughs> you open the hard way right above your eyebrow and that photo. It was like in the first like minute, if I, uh, you know, if memory serves me correct. And I was really sad. I, you know, look, man, I'm not your typical, <laughs> you know, alpha male wrestler. I, I scrapbook, right. I'm like the sensitive hardcore guy, but you know, I, I wanted that stuff to look good. And so when I felt that warmth coming down my face, you know, I knew the feeling had been there before i was really happy about it because i knew that that had been a good decision not talking long-term health-wise because you know some of the stuff i did uh, you know long-term is is not good for you and i wouldn't recommend it to anybody but uh for the sake of that match at that time i felt like i had made a sound decision i uh i can't imagine how stiff a punch from terry gordy here when he's got something to prove in front of 30,000 people must be. It was, it was stiff, but not as stiff as a Terry Funk working punch. So, uh, <laughs> love you for that. I remember I'd worked with Vader. Uh, so I knew what the upper echelon of stiff felt like. And then I would later go on to work with uh, stone cold and, and Brett and Sean, Sean delivered the goods too. When, especially when it came to the televised matches, you know, he was, nobody was smoother, but brother, he delivered those, those punches. Brett proudly referred to his punches as the rubber mallets. And I think Steve was always just a tiny bit hurt that I didn't feel like he was the snuggest. <laughs> and I have to be like, I'm sorry, Steve, you know, you are, and I, and then the, the, the Santa memoir I wrote, which I knew going in, no one was going to read. I said like, you know, there's no, there's no correct way to get to the finish line. You know, uh, you make it look as good as you can. So 
if you're the rock and you throw amazing punches and they don't hurt much and you're Steve and you throw amazing punches that do hurt considerably more, no one's right or wrong. And I said, look, Steve Austin was a lot of things, but an illusionist was not one of them. Like he was, <laughs> he was a physical, you know, he worked that really rugged physical style. And, uh, I was always comfortable with that. As long as nobody took, uh, liberties with your nose, your teeth, you know, jaw, Steve laying that stuff in and, uh, it looked, it looked great. And so, yeah, those punches from Gordy were no day at the beach. Um, but, uh, you know, that was just a price that, uh, we, you know, we, or I guess in this case, I was willing to pay podcast and we'll make sure next time Nick has headphones when he was at mom's house, I will have (laughs) (laughs) proper lighting. I'll probably be wearing my bottom teeth. Uh, check it out, boys and girls, bluetooth.com. The promo code is fully my poor condom. Yeah. I, uh, I said in the book that in my wallet, I, I had three things. A note in my wallet. I had uh, uh, the condom that crumbled over time. I had the photo of Jack Lord from uh, Hawaii Five O, and I also had the lyrics to a Kinks song called "The Way Love Used to Be." So I love it. Yeah. So uh, the the condom went many years without <laughs> being used, and when I attempted to utilize it uh, after three years in my wallet, it crumbled. Didn't know. Uh, <laughs> Probolactics did that. And all right, okay, yeah. So let, that's enough boner talk. Yeah, we're back in uh the hard way match here with you and uh Terry Gordy. He opens you up with those punches. Now it's time to get going with the thumbtacks. First, you just try it on for size with your boot. You know for sure they're in your boot now. And here they come. He's gonna smash your face into it. He's gonna power bomb you into it. You're gonna throw the thumbtacks at him, you're gonna give him the DDT, you get the pin. And somehow he escapes thumbtack free. <laughs> so you made his punches look good because they were real. Yeah. And he's thumbtack free. Boy, you're just batting a thousand in this match. Uh, are you not? And also you've heard me. Um, I think on two different tours, I've talked about, uh, the Foley risk reward ratio analysis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did. I felt like I had a gift that would size up opportunities in or outside the ring, around the ring, and tell me whether or not the reward was worth the risk. And again, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not, <laughs> help me with the word. I'm not, I'm, I'm not approving of people using this. There's a better word. It will come to right. me. Number one best selling author did it twice. Um, but I am tired from the coast to coast flights because I am, I may or may not be working a job that requires constant travel. We'll know more in the uh, early months of 2023, but the thumbtacks always seem to me to be on the high end of the reward versus risk. You just got to close that one eye as tight as you possibly can. So in this case, I had thought instead of just going into it, you know, we're going to try something different. By this point, I'm a seasoned veteran when it comes to the push pin misery death matches. And so I take a bump and my face kind of lies in that shallow box. And then Gordy puts a good solid boot to the opposite side of my face. And I did, this was, I'm getting goosebumps. I shouldn't, I should not getting goosebumps about something like this, but the payoff was so big because I'm working, uh, 30,000 people in a 40,000 seat, uh, stadium. It's the biggest show I've ever done. 
I take that, um, that boot to the opposing side. I've never seen anyone do this. And as a result, I have about five or six really pronounced tacks in that uh, shallow box side of my face. And I do the slow lap around the ring selling so that every person can get uh, a visual. And there is a wave of reaction. It's just, it's, yeah, I got getting the tingles. I shouldn't be 57. I'm a, you know, a civilized human being with four children, uh, rich children's books with dog on it. Conrad, there was something really rewarding about having an image and seeing it play off and paying a relatively small price for the privilege of having 30,000 people react in that manner. The next match is just unbelievable, dude. The bed of nails. I don't even know how we do this, but at some point, I guess you sat down and watched this match with Paul Bearer, and even he was wincing when he sees on the tape where barbed wire sticking to your shoulders, you're trying to get up. Yeah. Nakamaki's big move is is a series of headbutts. You're right. When it's time to introduce the bed of nails, you write, I slid it into the ring and propped it up in the corner, and as the crowd began to buzz, I grabbed the bleeding danger man and standing above him. I attempted to grind his head into the nails. Bleeding's part of his gimmick. Don't feel bad for him. He, he likes it that night. Even if I'd never touched him. <laughs> uh, I love that response, but tell me, you know, uh, how do you work with nails? What in the world? Well, here's the deal. <laughs> 1000 nails. Good. One six inch nail. <laughs> <laughs> can, can, can you know kill you or cause great damage so it's it's not an illusion it's just that you, the more nails you can land on the safer you are i mean there's a high degree of danger because there's no guarantee like the headhunters were a legit 450 and they would come off the top rope with a moonsault onto someone who was on a bed of nails or sandwiched between a bed of nails and barbed wire boards. Um, so there was definitely some danger. And, um, but, but the key was to land on as many nails. And again, using the Miyagi theory, like you either, you either use the nails, the bed of nails, or you don't, but don't go halfway. Don't introduce the bed and then do nothing with it. You know, attack it, show that bed of nails who's boss. Now, if they're, like I said, if I was Working in a match where there was one large spike in the middle of that thing, I would have avoided it like the plague. But, um, yeah, again, high end of the risk reward ratio, not condoning it. Condoning is the word I was looking for earlier, not condoning it. Um, but doggone it, it, there was a lot of bang for the buck there. And as we will probably talk about, you know, there was a big. I'll even say paradigm shift for me. I know I'm borrowing that from the shield, but a big shift for me because at a certain point in the match, uh, Nakamaki's out on the floor and with his 100% approval, because he liked this stuff and he was all for it. When I, uh, told him, you know, we had a very limited, uh, ability to communicate, you know, basically we had the same conversation. Every time I saw him, he would say, you danger man. And I said, no, you danger man. My <laughs> God. But in this case, you know, instead of just dropping an elbow on him, which is a good move from the apron of the floor, sure. I put the bed over his body 
And uh, I climb up to the ring apron and I think to myself, I'm always somebody who completely respected my opponent's body. Always, not always, this is one glaring omission. I get up on that ring apron and I see uh, a fellow human being underneath that uh, bed of nails. And I think to myself, I could make sure that as little damage as possible occurs to him. And then it's almost like the devil popping up on my other shoulder going, or you can make this shit look good. (laughs) And you know, I don't drop any of these bad words unless it's necessary, but that's exactly what was going through my mind. And I made the decision that I would make that stuff look good. And I did. And there was this part of me that when I dropped it and I, I don't think he's a, good enough seller or actor to act as uh, horribly pained as he was. Uh, And when I heard the sounds of humor and suffering, I liked it. Oh gosh. I love it. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let uh, you guys digest that. All of you listening. And I just to repeat, I liked it. You wrote in your book about this nails circumstance. The nails pierced my skin. The pain shot through my body. But honestly, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. I was rocking and reeling, but I stopped him and threw him to the infield grass. We were right by the second bed of nails. And when I picked him up, they stood in unison to see the impact of flesh on pointed steel. Instead, I slammed him somewhat harmlessly on the stadium infield. And I could hear the disappointment from the fans, but I had a definite plan. And it didn't include something as mundane as a simple slam on the nails. And Meltzer would write that the fans here, they're more American-like in their behavior. They're cat-calling wrestlers. They're not really paying attention to the matches that they don't know. It's a beer-drinking crowd, as opposed to what you would see, Webby, with All Japan or New Japan. Were you expecting that, or did you kind of think it would be like some of the tapes you had been watching? You know what? I, I, I Well, I knew it was. I knew from past uh uh tours it wasn't going to be exactly like that with the you know with the yes. respectful golf clap but again i knew what it was like to feel like i was uh um i mean i just use that animal in a cage reference because there were times you know when i'd be like an indie show and someone yell up and say i paid a ticket to see you bleed and it, you know it's uh, you know that's kind of a regrettable feeling whereas i did not have that feeling ever in Japan, even on that show. And I think there was one write-up, not Dave's, I guess, but a write-up where it said like the fans actually left with a sense of peace and calm, even though they're seeing these barbaric acts, we're like in an atmosphere where we know that everyone is totally on board with what they're doing, wants to be there, realize that it's the biggest show of the year. And so I, I'm going to disagree with that sentiment. I thought it was uh, a respectful, enthusiastic crowd. You would write that, uh, you know, your next plan here, and you can go watch the tape rather than just do a simple slam. You're going to come off with that big elbow onto him on a bed of nails. And you would say in your book, his pain would go away, but this tape would be forever. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately the nails dig into him pretty deep in a couple of spots. He's in pretty considerable pain, but he tells you he's okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you would write in your book that he was kind of notorious for being a sandbagger, meaning he was almost <laughs> impossible to lift off the ground. 
<laughs> so you, you give him a sloppy looking low suplex in the ring, finish him with a D, DDT on the bottom. Yeah, I was supposed, here's the thing. Sandbagging is usually meant to imply it's intentional. Yes. It wasn't, it, it was not intentional. And I liked working with Nakabaki. I know Dave thought he was a dreadful worker, but I had a different perspective in that he, he sacrificed, he made people feel he sold well. He was willing to try anything. He trusted me with whatever I wanted to do. And we had those great, uh, five work conversations. You danger man. No, you danger man. And, uh, but with all that positive stuff being said, he was also a heck of a writer. You know, he, uh, came from a journalism background in Japan. Um, with that being said, he went up as heavy for moves as anyone I've ever, Vader went up much, when I say lighter, I mean much lighter at 425 or whatever than Nakamaki did at 250. So the, actually the finish was supposed to be the suplex, uh, from the second rope. I wasn't never a top rope guy, second rope onto the bed of nails and I couldn't lift him. I could not get him up, you know? Um, and, uh, so the DDT on the barbed wire and the barbed wire board was a secondary and very weak finish for a match of that magnitude. You know, it's almost like hitting someone <laughs> with sir and a grenade followed up by a BB gun, uh, for the finish. But, um, you know, it was what it was. And I, uh, I felt fortunate to still be in one piece as I headed into the, uh, the final match of the evening. Before you get there, you're going to interfere and cost Tiger Jeet Singh his match against Terry Funk. So now our finalists are set. It's two Americans. It's Terry Funk versus Mick Foley. And, uh, this is why you're here, man. You wanted to be in this match with Terry mm -hmm. Funk and we're actually going to watch it. Uh, so let's fire up that footage and let's watch the finals of the IWA King of the death match. I can't believe this is a real thing. Here we go. Let's do it. Let me start to find my glasses. You know, the audience. So there you go. There's the C4. We see the barbed wire boards. What a visual, man. What a crowd. It was great. And I had, I had watched, uh, what would be considered, I guess the co-main event at the time, Dan Severn going into professional wrestling was a huge deal because yeah. he was so big from UFC and why he decided on IWA instead of, uh, you know, new Japan or all Japan is beyond me. But he and Goto had had a, uh, you know, a really good, you know, uh, physical bloody match. And I remember watching it from the dugout with Chigusa Nagoya, who I've only met a few times over the years, but who's a company I really liked and, uh, <laughs> to be on my, uh, probably my Mount Rushmore women's wrestling. So, uh, that was memorable. And then I had to gear up for my own match. Terry came in, like, we didn't talk about anything that I recollect. I don't want to say like I called everything in the ring. As a matter of, you know, uh, as, as, you know, a matter of fact all the time. But in this case, the only thing I remember was Terry coming in saying, you know, cactus, I wouldn't do this for many people talking about, uh, putting me over. And I understood the magnitude of winning a match. And, uh, unless I'm mistaken, I believe in Japan, I'm still known as cactus Jacko, king of the death match. Like I, I kind of want to go to a convention. Or maybe, uh, you know, attend a, a show in Japan. I haven't been there since 2004 and I'd like to go back because I think, you know, in spite of the, all the things I did with WWE, 
this is uh, the match I'm best known for. It's amazing to hear that and know, you know, what a big part of your career was, but what the financial end was. And we'll talk about that later, but I just want to ask, as you go into this match, you've seen the C4 beforehand, Terry Funk had the argument. Of course, this is exploding barbed wire. So we're doing a little psychology about, nope, I'm too smart for that. Yep. I'm not going that. That. Yep. And that was Terry had a way, like, this was the one argument and that I didn't actually have an argument. I, I may have, may have tried gentle persuasion to tell Nakamaki and Ono that if we have barbed wire everywhere, my God, don't take a post and go down and, you know, whether or not uh, a sharp implement of destruction was used, which it was, it was like when Funk did it to this day, I can't ever come up with a point where I can say I saw it happen and I've never seen it happen on the video. Whereas it was almost considered the manly thing to do in, you know, Japanese culture to let everybody know that you were getting the color. And so here we would be surrounded by, uh, you know, like I said, all these great implements, you know, these great explosives Not you know, on any given day, there'd be some kind of type of barbed wire match in the IWA Japan show. And yet he would take like a, a turnbuckle and, <laughs> and go down for what seemed to be minutes, you know, like he was drawing on his head with a crayon and come up with the blood and the, and, Oh my gosh. I like, this is one case where, you know, I, I love the idea, you know, and I'm, you know, prepped the hard ways. I know we're not calling the action here, but this is, you get so much mileage out of this stuff because Terry sold it so well and he'll come up bleeding and we have no idea. You know, I don't, I can't see where he did it. Um, but, uh, try, trying to make the matches make sense so that they were that surreal albeit violent expression of art, uh, as opposed to just, uh, you know, a, a cluster F, uh, but sometimes, you know, you just, if you were, you know, you'd go in understanding it's not going to be a work of art, you know, we're at a spot show, we're going to work hard. I'm going to accept that, uh, Nakamaki's going to take three and a half minutes to get the, the color <laughs> and he's not going to go up easy on slams. So we're going to do the best that we can with both guys trying. And in this case, like, I love the fact that this is one of the most, you know, at that point, uh, one of the biggest matches ever on videotape, but take it from me, from a guy who watched up to 12 hours of great Japanese wrestling, uh, the match itself, you know, is, I was just trying to survive it. Uh, whoa, there we go, man. And that's the legit deal, you know, and big explosion and you still see the fire going. Yeah. Uh, you can see, uh, uh, it's sticking into Terry's back. What's going through your mind in that moment right there? What's you know, like, man, that is every bit as loud as I remember it. And I was thinking, I told you we should not have put a, uh, yeah, <laughs> an explosive in the middle. So I, I look, you know, like, man, one of the things I, I, I do, I like blood to some extent in some matches and some people wore it better than others like there are some people for, for me at least where uh them bleeding does not add a single thing uh to the match whereas i just thrown out a name like brick baker looked good you know like she wears it well yes and i always thought i wore it pretty well and sometimes that's just a little trickle coming down from the hard way that was reopened by terry funk legit and i think sometimes even though i'll be literally almost like cascading pull up at the end of this match oh i didn't go up too light for that one um 
So uh, I was about 280 here and in some pretty good cardio. Oh, man, that's a simple thing. And uh, maybe, you know, it hasn't stood the test of time. But, uh, you know, we did tell a little story. Uh, we worked the wire to where we showed off, the, you know, like the ominous nature and how, you know, we were trying to avoid it. Um, but clearly, you know, we're going to end up in that stuff. You know, that's a, that's a foregone conclusion. You wrote in your book, as I got closer, I became braver to the point. I thought I'm going to take this whole side out talking about the barbed wire. Yeah. I thought I could I've done this twice at Cork and hall and it was impressive, but injuries were likely, I didn't really care at this point. I was pretty banged up already. As it turned out, the point was, oh, there it is. Toss on my part, terrible beal toss, but. Uh, on the other hand, I did land on C4 explosive. That one didn't hurt as much because I was rolling. So my initial reaction, and I'm going to pay the price as we go on here. A lot of people know this match by heart. They know there's a second landing that doesn't work out nearly as well for me. And again, this is all stuff that's being uh, called. It's nothing monumental, but yet we both firmly believe that the ring Mm -hmm. is going to implode at the 10 minute mark as it had for the fmw matches um and so that was a rude you know we were in for uh quite a surprise and a rude awakening when we found out you know yeah it was i think i described it as looking like four roman candles (laughs) going off uh and again this is our third match of the night of the day uh the match the day was so hot that the opening matches couldn't go to the mat uh, they had a, uh, um, uh, something different than the traditional canvas cover for this big show. It was like plastic. And, it was hot, yeah, right? like plastic. And, uh, I won't say someone fried an egg on it, but I believe you could. And it was, uh, man, it was hot out there. It was hot out there. And again, I had torn down the, uh, the sides, um, uh, in a couple of, uh, my matches and going back to January 8th, 95 where I tried the hangman and the ropes. Uh, I've since speculated that maybe if you lose an ear doing that match, you should probably take that particular, uh, doing that move, you should take that particular item off the menu and not try to do it in barbed wire. So I nailed the hangman itself, but the wire didn't support my uh, body. Oh, man, Funk had some good distance on that. Uh, What's Mrs. Foley heating up in the microwave? Mom, what are you making over there? Mom? Mom, oh, what are you making? Oh, you're heating up your sandwich. Okay. What? Yeah, you're heating up your Jersey Mike sandwich. Yeah. Okay. Like this. Yeah. My brother went to made a Jersey Mike's run, and uh, my mom loves those sandwiches. Yep. Uh, yeah, turkey and cheese. Yeah. So that's what. There you go. Eating. A little turkey and cheese action here yeah. on Foley's. Oh, there. We go. Similar to what I did to Nakamaki. And I'm just trying to think of stuff to do. Like, we're just trying. Again, uh, I was, I set out at the beginning of the day to tear the house down. But by that point, it was like 8 p.m. And I'm, or maybe 9 p.m. And I'm just trying to get through it. I'm literally using, you know, trying to survive it. And we're trying to get to that 10 minute mark. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit. I am. I'm scared, man. I'm not to admit to, I'm not afraid to admit I was scared of that ring imploding. I'd seen it before. Uh, but well, here comes Terry. Jabs, punch, 
boom, boom. He was sending those bad, believe me, he's sending those bad boys. And now you wouldn't believe how over the step over toehold was in Japan. You know, uh, I submitted to Dory Funk Jr. in all Japan. And the, uh, I submitted to that match and I submitted to Kurt Angle. But I believe those are the only two submission losses. Uh, here comes Tiger Jeet Singh to help me out. Tiger Jeet Singh was a legendary figure in Japan. Uh, I think, you know, he, he defeated um, Antonio Inoki when nobody did that, including Muhammad Ali. And that really made him. And he was, uh, he was also with the audience. It's, uh, it's remarkable to, to take a look at this and realize that we're watching something from 1995. This is 27, over 27 years old. Oh, there's the second yeah. explosion. Yeah. That's not good for that care. was a good one. And now it's sticking in his hair, which is always a good visual. Uh, I was, I, I was big on getting my hair caught up. Uh, because again, a lot of bang for the buck and I uh, one, two. Oh, so we've had one with two false finishes in this match. Uh, and then what I would do, if there's a, such a thing as a secret, I would grab my hair by the roots and then pull so that, uh, the hair was being pulled from the ends and not the roots, if that makes uh, a sense, but brother, you know, it was uncomfortable. You'd lose hair would be caught up in the wire you know later on i would go as mankind to get a lot of mileage out of let's track it here steve we're about yeah. to see the big explosion let's try okay it. here we go look at that roman candles harry stands up and he goes like what you can hear the groaning We're both at a loss. What the heck are we going to do? We've got the audio, Steve. And now, as soon as I roll back in, the first thing Terry says to me is, we better get him back. And this is where the injuries start to pile up. Now, boom. That's not good. That's not good. And the reason I rolled over like that, I, it felt like I'd been shot. You know, it's, I don't want to say I was in shock. And I don't want to compare what I did to someone who suffered a gunshot wound speculating to me that was the first thought i had and man it feels like i've been shot i'm rolling over and uh that would that that bump would go on to you know create a, a real you know a pretty large second degree burn it healed up nicely over time but man in the days preceding that match i was a freaking mess you know i, I wrestled a independent match with sabu my arm swathed and you know gauze to where i looked like boris karloff in the original universal mummy movie movie. And then the cause came off, uh, in the course of the match and with it, all that, uh, you know, that skin, bam, again, maybe not the greatest blow, but he, we're about to see where I nearly lose my good ear and I've got what, uh, suplexing the, the, the ladder, just trying to come up with stuff, trying to get the fans back. It has a little bit of panic in Bolsa. I don't know. I can't say Terry panic, but I was thinking, how are we going to get these, how are we going to get these people back? Now I'm not just trying to survive it. I am trying to salvage it by any means necessary. So the bump you're about to see this one, uh, no, I think I drop an elbow first off of here and it's a good elbow. I mean, it's okay, but it's, it looks great in the magazines because you can literally see the drops of blood, you know, every foot or so, uh, there was a great pullout, uh, WWE had in their magazine. 
So, uh, you know, it feels like I'm pretty high up there, even though I'm only four, four feet, but it's a good solid elbow. Uh, and now when I go back again, this is what me and Paul Heyman would refer to. Sorry about that. As the F troop bump, F troop was a great, uh, sixties, late sixties, maybe early seventies sitcom based on, uh, the cavalry in the wild west. And uh, there was a bump where the entire like section of the fort would tip over. And so I'm actually looking to sail over the barbed wire onto the floor, but I get a little scared and I tighten up and oh. st- that happens. And I, I had, uh, some massive stitches in my hand and I needed 14 or 16 behind the right ear. So I was nearly a man with no ears. Like, uh, I needed so much stitching done again, not, not to brag, although I guess I'm kind of proud of it in a weird way, but 42 stitches in six different body parts. And, uh, you know, that would be seen today as a very lackluster, uh, did he kick out there or is it over? Uh, you're the king of the death match. Yeah. I mean, that would be and, seen and by would say the audience was confused, but not disappointed. It, yeah. I way too long and too hard for my victory to be questioned. I was the king of the death match. Right. And I thought it was, um, you know, we can go, go into, uh, you know, um, the, the false finishes and the looks of disbelief that I think are overused on t- in today's game. Uh, but I would say those guys who do the great moves and the false finishes would look at that and go, wait, that's the finish. That's the finish to a tournament. But I felt at that time, like it was, uh, re- reasonable and realistic and a good way to end a long day of suffering. Uh, I think if we, we again, we were trying to salvage a bad situation, and I think in the aftermath, you know, it took on um, uh, like kind of a majestic feel. You know, people were not expecting Terry Funk uh, to lose, and by doing that favor for me, like I said, if, I think if I went back to Japan, I would be known first and foremost as the king of the death match, a WWE champion. Uh, you know, later one half of the rocket sock connection as well. But, uh, that's what I think I'm still known as to this day, the king of the death match. <laughs> of course, I was going to follow every move you do here. You're trying, you wrote in your book that you tried to shake Terry's hand in accordance with the promoter's wishes, but you're hustled out by the young boys, uh, before you really get the chance. And you write that I was handed a huge trophy, which I held high overhead for all of Kawasaki to see. I put the trophy down and haven't seen it since. Never saw it. Can you imagine what that would bring on the open market, brother? Be awesome. Great. I never saw. Yeah, I never saw it again. I tried to shake his hand, uh, and I did say in my promo, "You're a hell of a man, Terry Funk. Uh, you know, a hell of a man." Uh, and uh, you know, I'm wearing the "Born to Be Wired" shirt underneath there. Uh, wish I had all that gear. Uh, to this day and all right, put the thing down. I never see it again. Never see it again. Nobody sells the effects of a major match like Terry Funk. You wrote in your uh, book while I celebrated, Terry was placed in an ambulance and rushed to the hospital. It was a truly touching scene as the adoring crowd reached out just to touch him and chanted his name. Terry had done me a gigantic favor. Terry had only lost a couple of matches in the last decade in Japan and a victory over the Funker was a huge milestone. 
Terry Funk, who had spent his entire career giving, had just given me a hell of a gift. I guess after all these years, maybe he really did see shit in me after all. <laughs> I walked back to the dugout area that led to the dressing rooms, and before entering, I stepped into one of the alternate rings and delivered a final bang bang. I walked to the concession area where I saw Mr. Asano. He was beaming, and rightfully so. This had been a huge success for his little promotion. I was covered in blood from head to toe and had literally risked my life for his company. I thought he would surely recognize this. Asano son, I said, big house today. Maybe Sakoshi bonus. Sakoshi. Oh, you don't pronounce the first, uh, vowel sound. It's a little lesson in Japanese for you. Thank you, sir. Sakoshi. Sakoshi. That's why Asuka is not Asuka. She's Asuka. Yeah, just a little less. Sano smiled his $500 smile and $500 million smile. There you go. As he put a 100 yen coin into the soda machine. And he said, here, here's bonus. I don't know where the $300 I earned that day went, but I do know where my bonus went. I brought it unopened back home where it now occupies a place of honor in my bathroom closet. I don't want to showcase it too much. Wait, hold on. Can I just interject to say? Please. As we're talking with the backlighting, I can see a wild hair, not up my butt like most people's wild hairs, but I'm I'm trying to tap to that wild hair. Uh, so, all right, go ahead. Your your pay for this? Yeah, I said three hundred because uh, we were gone for ten days, so it works out to three hundred a day. But if you you know you say we were actually wrestling seven days, then it does come out to that uh, four hundred and twenty-two dollar. <laughs> Some whatever the case is, I don't think anyone's ever worked harder for their money than I did that night. Let's track your. I feel like a king. I felt like shaking Terry Punk's hand. Do it, Terry. Well, so am I, Terry. There you go. Did you put Christmas on a credit card? Don't stress out about that extra holiday spending. Savewithconrad.com can help you consolidate all of your high interest rate credit cards into one much lower monthly payment. Savewithconrad.com has helped families just like yours save up to $800 a month. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And did I mention no payments until March? So don't make saving money a resolution next year. Make it happen today at savewithconrad.com. Man, what a, what a moment that we just saw. One of your biggest moments and matches of your entire yeah. career. You wrote in your book, I answered questions for the Japanese media while they took careful inventory of my injuries. They photographed my ear, my hand, my eye, and my head. Strangely, I hadn't thought much about my arm since the explosion, although it did seem to bother me. When the media left, I was practically alone. I had to think <laughs> about what had just gone on in the stadium and just what the kids would think when they saw their battered big daddy-o stumble in the front door. Yeah. After careful reflection, I had the sudden revelation that maybe I too needed some medical attention. When I walked out the door, the screaming fans were gone. The ambulance was history. Only Masa stayed behind. The it bus was gone too. Yeah. The, <laughs> so let me put this in perspective, Conrad. I'm the king of the death match. Mm -hmm. My trophy's gone. Yep. I got a, uh, uh, Pokari sweat. I believe was the soft drink that cost a hundred yen for Mr. Asano. And now I am told that I will have to walk to the hospital 
with uh, Masanari Hori, who's a, you know, a good friend and a super fan, like uh, a quote just Chris Jericho. Uh, I don't care who you are, if you haven't met Masa, you're not. So, uh, he was, I called him and I, now this hasn't, this hasn't aged well, you know, the native American reference. I called him my Kimosabi. <laughs> yeah. He was Kimosabi to my Lone Ranger. And so I had, uh, you know, Masa, uh, walking me to the hospital, which was like, I, I think less than a half a mile away, but it's just this, again, it's that surreal nature that you are the king of the death match. You, if not cheered, at least been appreciated by the majority of those 30,000 people. Uh, you're surrounded by media and now you're, you're all alone. Uh, it's just you and Masa going to, uh, the hospital where I believe I have so many injuries that I don't even ask about, uh, my arm because like I, I said earlier, I had forgotten about it. You wrote in your book, I was stitched up in the same room as Terry. He took some stitches in his head and his triceps area was badly burned. I took seven, seven stitches in my hand, nine in my eyebrow, 11 in my head and 14 behind my ear. Once again, I failed to acknowledge the injury to my arm, even though it was now throbbing with pain. When I returned to the section of Tokyo, I phoned home and blatantly lied to Colette by telling her I was fine. Yeah. Hanged up pun, but nothing too serious. Then I had a small <laughs> dinner with Masa. Headed to my room to count my t-shirt money and eat ice cream in bed. Ice cream in bed. Count the money, eat ice cream in bed. It's those little things. Uh, you know, part of the nature of the business, uh, and I've I, I remember, remember having this talk with Becky Lynch is that feeling of, you know, an enormous accomplishment and then having no one to share it with. Uh, some guys go out. Uh, you know, and celebrate. And I, I kind of, I'm kind of like that post-match solitude though. I, you know, I wish I had a loved one and I, and I, if I didn't talk about it yet on the show, I, I know I mentioned it and, uh, uh, I think I mentioned Foley is good that after I had my last match with Hunter, you know, I went back to my room and I cried, um, because it was all over because I had no one to share it with. And, uh, I do remember talking with Becky about that you know, the highs and lows. Um, and I think it's a healthy part. I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't want people to feel bad for me because I value those times, you know, <laughs> counting my money and eating ice cream in bed, uh, or, you know, crying in uh, my room after, you know, I honestly believe my career was gone, but it was this surreal thing where I'm the king of the death match. I get the soft drink. I have the trophy that I never see again. I'm getting stitched up. I failed to mention the most, probably the most serious of the injuries, which I won't actually know is serious until the next day. And then, uh, you know, I walk to the hospital and, uh, I'm in a little hotel room by myself at the end of the tour. And the hits keep on coming. Um, I want to remind everybody you wrestled here. In front of 28,757 fans mm -hmm. with barbed wire, with thumbtacks, with a bed of nails, with ladders, with C4 explosives, and you came home with 300 bucks in your pocket. <laughs> um, well, actually, I came home with three grand for the tour, and I probably I did well on t-shirts that day, and I always did well in Corican. 
Uh, so I came home with more than that, but it was a lot to pay. And like I said, uh, until the juggalos, uh, threw me some cash for Stranglevania, I never saw a dime in royalties, but what it was worse to me, you know, went made meant far more, um, than the money. Are we going to cover the, the next day at the airport and on the plane? We are, we're going to do that right now. You wrote in the, in your book. I arrived at the arrived at the Tokyo airport the next morning, walked aboard, and I heard my name called. Walked to the boarding desk. Mr. Foley, a woman explains you've been upgraded. I didn't know what to think. I'd been upgraded without asking. I <laughs> thought about it while I sat in my wide, comfortable business class seat. Yeah. They, me, they must have simply felt sorry for me. We took off I, for JFK and the woman next to me started to wiggle. <laughs> tried not to look at me, and when she did, she was clearly uncomfortable. And I tried to put myself in her shoes and the situation became a little clear. I had prominent stitches in my eyebrow and head. My right cheek was deeply swollen purple. And I had my left ear bandaged with gauze to make matters worse because of the stitches. I couldn't shower. Yeah. And my hair was particularly matted with dry blood. The dry blood was flaking off in small chips onto my shoulder and it <laughs> it all off my right arm, which I had finally deduced had been burned by the explosion was now turning brown. Mm-hmm. Poor lady excused herself to go to the restroom and oddly after an hour had not returned. I looked around and saw her in the distance, resting comfortably somewhere in the vicinity of 21 C. This woman had paid a great deal of extra money to sit in business, but had made a conscious decision to sit in coach rather than next to me. And I kind of like that. I did. I did. And I, I, the cool thing is at no point that I think it came down to race, you know, <laughs> He wasn't avoiding me because of, I just want to put that out there for the harmonious nature of, uh, of mankind and coexisting. Uh, she, she was scared and, uh, I, I guess deservedly. So yeah, I, ne- and I, I never flew first class. That was the only time I ever had a, of, uh, a business class ticket, um, in Japan. And I really valued that, but it was true that, I mean, that's a long flight. I think I, I think the deal was you flew into Detroit nonstop, and then I had to catch a flight to uh, New York. I don't think, even though they do have nonstops on Northwest, I don't think I had a nonstop JFK where we had uh, moves because it was a uh, move from Atlanta because it allowed me to drive to a lot of the ECW shows. It allowed, uh, it was a lot better. Uh, my wife could be in New York City where she was doing some modeling, uh, one hour train ride. And so we'd made that move. It was my dad who, picked me up at the airport and I was just, I was like shifting around. So he wouldn't see that arm. And, uh, you know, you may have had this lined up to read, but I'll just, uh, if it's all right, I'll take it on my own. Yeah. Uh, when I got home, my wife mm-hmm. was like, you know, I look bad, right? I mean, there was a photo and I'll try to, I'll try to dig it. I, I won't be able to dig up in time because I'm on the road for, uh, you know, quite a long period of time. But it's a, a photo taken at the airport. I think it's with Gordy and Funk, and I'm just there's just so much gauze and so many, so much tape and injuries. Uh, that when I got home, I was a, a sight to behold. But above and beyond the visual, it was the smell, you know. And my wife was like, "What was it? A smoking flight?" I was like, "No." She was like, "Oh, it smells, it smells awful." And my dad was my dad was still there. He picked me up, driven me back to our rented house on the island. And, uh, it wasn't until he left, my wife was seriously, Nick, that's like nauseating. What the heck is that? And I rolled up my sleeve and I went, it's me. (laughs) 
there was a, and can I point out, uh, that I did wrestle two days later. It wasn't the next day. It wasn't the day I got home, but I believe I wrestled the next day or the day after that wrestled, uh, Sabu at an independent show. Um, and I think it was the day before SummerSlam because I was at the same hotel as some of the WWE guys. That was where I first met Shawn Michaels, uh, hung out with, uh, Diesel, uh, you know, our friend, Kevin Nash, uh, Scott Hall was there and, uh, the skin had just fallen off my arm. And there's a photo taken, I think the day after that at an ECW show, it's in the, uh, have a nice day, uh, book in the color section where I'm doing the bang, bang, and I've got the bandages on and, uh, there's, you know, a noticeable, you know, uh, loss of skin, uh, on that right arm. Looking back, any regrets about this one? No regrets. Uh, not even a single, not even a single letter, which is a, we're the Miller's thing. And Aaron, yeah. can I, can I just tie this into a unique situation we have here? Yeah. Keep in mind that I was a very limited athlete, right? And I was always trying to make the most, uh, out of my limited skills by going that extra yard or whether it was, you know, physically, uh, you know, physical sacrifice or being imaginative and taking a place. So I have in front of me, this situation we will probably never have because I'm at my mom's house. This is the 1970 Parsonage Yankees yearbook. I, I think it was going for 25, not 75 cents. Wow. And read you the write up Foley Mick. My gosh. It says, Mick is the finest fielder batter combination of everyone age seven or below the Yanks have though Mick is not fast. He comes up with many hits and is a fine catcher. So I was working with physical, uh, limitations way back when, even when I was the most talented, uh, <laughs> under seven player on the Parson of Yankees, where we'd actually take on teams from other neighborhoods and we had organized a wiffle ball across the street from me at uh, Forte <laughs> Roadside <laughs> Memorial Stadium, not realizing that memorial meant you were honoring someone no longer with us. And Mr. Forte at the time was alive and well. Oh. Uh, uh, but sorry about this, the sunlight. I can't control this stuff, but it does give it kind of like, uh, I think it, it fits in with the surreal nature of this conversation. It makes you feel uh, holier. Right. <laughs> there we go. That's better. And you were, and you were holy that day. I mean, tons of stitches. Uh, so you never saw the trophy again. We got lots of questions about that. Yeah. Um, you sort of alluded to it earlier. This became perhaps the most bootlegged traded wrestling tape of our generation. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly of all time up to that point, maybe still. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if, you know, there's nothing to compare it to it. YouTube hits are uh, much different than actually getting that tape in the mail. Uh, and there were, I mean, I don't know what the numbers were, but certainly tens of thousands of people who actually bought the tape, probably a lot more than that. Are you getting a good look at the contents of the closet there? The we closet? are, yeah, it looks fantastic. Before we proceed, can I just say, and I'm not just, you know, pandering because there are who sponsored, but when I did read about the new, uh, blade company, mm -hmm. I was really excited because it's, uh, it's really cool. 
It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's cutting edge stuff. And I will guarantee you, maybe not next week, because I, uh, like I said, I'm on the road for quite a while, but I will guarantee you that I will start using that product. Uh, I'll keep the goatee and, uh, I'm looking forward to being as smooth as a baby's bottom. Come on now. Now let's talk about the bootleg tape. Uh, you know, it becomes legendary. Like you're hearing people talk about it. You're, you know, it's growing. I mean, I, I got one in Alabama from RF video back in the day. I sent yeah. my 20 or $25 in or whatever. And a few days later, here it came and it was unbelievable to see what we were seeing even in 1997. And that tape would just continue to build this legacy. And then well, that, was, that was 95. I, I got the tape in 97. Oh, you got the tape in 97. Okay. So what you're My saying. point is it continued to sell to the point where one day you could just wander into a mall and see that the insane clown posse had turned this into a DVD <laughs> and they were calling you cactus sack. Right. And doing silly commentary over it because it did have Japanese commentary. And these Just folks commentary, were but really those really funny silly, silly commentary to the point where I didn't think it mocked the product in a strange way. I thought it added to it. And I'm telling you, when I see a juggalo coming up, you know, someone's either got the tattoo or the, um, the, the chain, uh, with the little, you know, the little guy with the hatchet. Sure. Uh, as soon as they come up, I go cactus sack and they go, would you, <laughs> I never felt ashamed to be cactus sack. I was kind of proud of that. And I, I was in the, uh, uh, ICP's, uh, first movie, big money hustlers and enjoyed that as well. You have to feel a little taken advantage of though, when you yeah. see the popularity of this tape and you know, like just off the top of our head, if we think this thing sold 10,000 copies, and I think that's probably a low number. Yeah. yeah. There's 200 grand worth of VHS sales minimum mm-hmm. plus the 28,000 people who bought tickets that day. And you on average went home with $425 for that show. Right. 300 a day four twenty-five. Yeah. Yeah. So you do it per day was 300, uh, per show four twenty-five. Do you make any approaches with any of these folks and try to ask for more money? You did tell the story about the insane clown posse trying to make you whole, but any other attempts with any other vendors or retailers? Um, man, you know, I don't ever browbeat people on here. Um, but you know, there's a promoter who's wanted to use me and, and I, if he made that whole tape thing, uh, made the <laughs> overture. It might be different and, uh, it's not like a grudge. Um, it's a principle. I get it. Yeah. It's a principle. Like I stand to make really good money if I did one of the, you know, for love of wrestling, but I had a problem where I thought I was treated, um, a less little, yeah, a little less than I like to be treated. And, uh, and so if I need the money, I'll go do it. But, um, until then, I won't, even though I stand to uh, do really well. And I don't mean to punish the UK fans <laughs> because right. of that. But yeah, I did. There's, there's times when you feel slighted and um, you feel like someone has the opportunity to make it up to you. And, uh, and you hope they do, but you accept that that's not likely to happen in the real world very often. And then you somehow some way run into the insane clown posse and i I believe the story is they paid you cash on site is that right 
I said, hey, man, <laughs> I did ask them about that. And they, uh, yeah, threw some money my way and then put me on the, uh, uh, in their movie. So, uh, I, and I've done the, the gathering twice. It was one of those things, uh, you know, a uh, bucket list thing. And, uh, they always treated me well. And I was so concerned about being showered with debris, <laughs> like some of the guests had. And one of the guys running, goes, no, they're not going to do that to you. And so I picked up, um, a rain poncho, uh, even though, uh, the weather forecast was for clear skies. And then I picked up, a a, a goalie stick at a, <laughs> at a sporting goods store. And I was like working in the pocket and, uh, uh, a lacrosse goalie stick. And the guy goes, Hey, you're going to play some wax. I said, no, and he goes, well, what are you going to do with it? I said, get some shit. <laughs> he uh, said, what kind is it? human <laughs> and then 20 minutes into my set i i said will someone at least throw a beer can at me so i could write the stick off of my taxes because they were uh really respectful and uh yeah so i uh i, I do like the clowns i uh i love this topic but i do want to ask uh and brad stanton asked it on twitter should death matches still be around yes my mom said yes did you hear i did <laughs> Ah, man, you know, hey, look, these are adults, consenting adults, uh, making decisions. I was at the, the Moxley gauge match and I, uh, you know, gladly joined in on commentary and I do. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't like the light tubes. I understand that it gets a heck of a pop, but on the risk reward ratio analysis, it's really low, a lot of risk. And, uh, like a uh, case in point, I'm so sorry about the sunlight thing here. No, it's fine. Okay. Case in point, you know, when I used, uh, light tubes, maybe for the first and only time in my boiler and brawl with undertaker, he got, uh, some of those fragments under his skin and it resulted in an awful staph infection and being the undertaker, he still made it to the next few, uh, we were in Puerto Rico and I, and I wrote about this in the book. Doctor came in and elbow was like the size of, I don't want to say basketball, but probably an orange, large orange, small grapefruit. And they squeezed it and pus just shot like six feet across the room, hit the wall. And then he, he did look like a dead man when he walked out. And eventually, um, as we talked about in the Bill Watts episode, he filled in a couple nights for the, uh, undertaker in a casket match and managed to beat me uh, without even losing his cowboy hat. Uh, so, but very, very rare for the undertaker who, as we speak, is only days away from being uh, <laughs> paid tribute to with my uh, uh, my rest in pieces uh, video. Mm. How fun was that? <laughs> it, was just, it was just ridiculous. I mean, I was out, I was visiting relatives, and then this... Uh, uh, adventure i may or may not be on uh you know traveling the country uh put me in a situation where i was only uh you know about uh i was en route to uh niagara falls and so i uh, i i stopped off to see a couple of friends and they had asked me they said they're going out trick-or-treating not trick-or-treating but going out for um to celebrate halloween and they were dressing up as wrestlers and asked me if i would wear an undertaker uh 
outfit. And I said, if you can find one that fits, you know, I'll wear it. And it was just, it was just so ridiculous. I saw the Parmesan cheese that night and I went rest in cheese. And then the next day I was like, pieces, rest in pieces. And I went and bought four jumbo bags of Reese's pieces and the rest, as they say, is history. And we should, I, I know we do this thing live, but, uh, can we next week insert that, uh, magical moment? It's a great, stay tuned. We'll throw it in at the end of this week. All right. 15 second video. Uh, it even got a comment from the undertaker who said in the comment section, well played my friend. And I hope people saw it as a tribute and not as a, uh, a mockery of that character. Oh, I've got 10% left. We better wrap this bad boy up. John Ram. Before we get out of here, Mick, I do want to ask, uh, Joey wants to know, what did you think of the exploding barbed wire match in AEW between Omega and Moxley, despite the famous botch? Well, I'm, you know, Hey, look, we had the big botch in our match too. Uh, man. unfortunately that's what the match is going to be, uh, known for. And the guys yeah. worked so hard before that. I'm not sure barbed wire is the best way to take advantage of Kenny's, you know, huge gifts. Um, they've had a little trouble with the stipulations. Um, oh man, that was the one uh, where Eddie was, <sighs> what? No, no, uh, Eddie was, where, where did Eddie come down and cover the body? Was that of Moxley? Uh, yes, that's his oh. best friend right at the very end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They've had a couple, uh, and this is, uh, I hate to overuse Mr. Miyagi, but, uh, you either stay on one side of the road or the other. And it seems like if you design it to be in the middle, you get squashed like a grape, where even if that's just emotionally. So I don't, man, I, I don't condone it, but I do understand that it is. Uh, you know, it, it is, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it is some people's cup of tea. And I find that the people who are drawn to it, watching it are a lot like the horror fans where, you know, you would think on paper and I've seen actresses, uh, specifically the actress who played, um, Jason Voorhees, mom went to a first convention and she was a little bit, uh, I've already used trepidatious once. So I'll just say, you know, a little bit hesitant. And then she realized, you know, how kind hearted the people are. And it's just been my history that the people who watch it are good people who, uh, you know, uh, like to see consenting adults do weird stuff. And, uh, I, I, man, uh, again, I don't condone it, but I understand it. And, uh, I, feel like the people who take that step and do it for more than the money are worthy of our admiration, even if it's not your thing. Well, hopefully this show is your thing. We hope that you'll throw us a like, leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button. If you think we've earned it, we'd love to have your interaction. You can ask questions here on the show at Foley is pod. The best way to introduce a new I, listener to you our know program here. This, this is me. Uh, this is me imitating the two hours that literally seem to fly by. I can't believe, uh, it's, we've been talking for two hours. Yes. And uh, can I thank all the people who choose to listen, uh, Please. and will watch because there were a lot of choices. Conrad, we've talked about this before when, uh, you know, you were pursuing me for a while, you know, yeah. going back, I, I would say 
four years, you know, 2018. Yeah. 2018. And, uh, you know, I kept coming finally, uh, I said, isn't, aren't there already too many podcasts and you made me feel like I had something valuable to offer. And so, uh, I know there's a lot of other great shows there. And I think I've said, like, we're all kind of taking on similar tours, uh, down, you know, trips down memory lane. And it just comes down to who you feel most comfortable with your tour guide. And so, uh, I really appreciate everyone who chooses to, uh, take the tour with me and I appreciate our new sponsors. We hope you guys will see us sooner rather than later. Next week, we'll be talking about survivor series, 1996. What we're doing coming off of buried alive is the reinvention of the undertaker. We'll briefly talk about Terry Gordy's cup of coffee with the WWF. Uh, of course, <laughs> takers, new look Paul bear and a shark cage, Steve Austin, having a hell of a performance with Bret Hart, the crowd there in New York turning against Shawn Michaels. It's going to be a lot of fun. All of that coming your way next week, right here on Folia's pod. One last thought uh, yes. for the kids out there. I've alluded to it before. The reason I, uh, uh, my right eye blinks a lot, I believe is because of the hard ways. I was warned that they were dangerous and they are. And uh, I think that's why that, uh, you know, I have that facial tick. I can't prove it scientifically, but I think so. Uh, so don't hard way each other. Uh, that moment has come and gone. I, I used it. I was proud of it, but, uh, it, it is, it's dangerous. And, uh, the skills that most of the men and women have are so good that they don't need to go there. And I just, I don't encourage anyone to do it because there's a heavy price to pay for it. Uh, I want to back up and, and comment on your light tube comment. I agree. Uh, I wish light tubes would go away. Uh, but I am curious. <laughs> What, can I just say one of my main concerns is that it, it's going to injure somebody in the crowd. I've seen it happen. Uh, there's so many uh, fragments and dust. Uh, and like I said, I saw it get under the skin and literally get under the skin of the undertaker. And I just, I don't want to hurt. I, I, you know, when I went to all Japan, I was taking bumps in the crowd in 91. I thought that was part of the deal. And then I found out that the, the fans uh, they don't mind being punched, but they don't want to be landed on. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I always tried to respect the safety of the fans. And once I found out that they weren't in on it, you know, <laughs> they do in Japan like to play extras, like in a monster movie and run in fear from you, even though they're not technically, uh, afraid of you. Um, but yeah, I, I'm worried about the, the fans and I'm worried about the guys. Uh, so I, I, you know, Nick Gage nearly lost his life because of a light tube. And again, we're consenting adults, but I, I would like to see something else replace the light tube as the gimmick of choice in those type of matches. What about C4? I mean, oh, well, four. Yeah. No more light tubes. Let's just blow each other up. There you go. In extreme situations. Okay. Yeah, in extreme situations, I'm not against it. If you can create an image that's going to last for 27 years, uh, I'm not against it. I don't condone it. I wouldn't advise anyone to do it for the amount of money I was doing it for. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I was okay with it on that particular day. And on that note, I'm going to recommend Foley go to uh, betterhelp.com forward slash Foley. <laughs> like, subscribe, turn your notifications on. Check us out on YouTube. It's youtube.com forward slash Foley is pod. We'll see you next week right here on Foley is pod.
Have a nice day. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson here to tell you a little more about what adfreeshows.com is all about. Get early ad-free access to more than a dozen of your favorite wrestling podcasts every single week, starting at just nine bucks. That's less than 20 cents an episode each month. And yes, you can listen to them all directly through Apple podcasts or your regular podcast apps. How easy is that? Ad-free shows also has thousands of hours worth of bonus content and docu-series like title chase, Eric fires back conversations with Conrad and the insiders. Plus new series like the book with David Crockett, Monday mailbags with Mike Kyoto and Nick Patrick and a whole lot more. And you want to talk about early. You can't get any earlier than listening to the shows live. You can be a part of the live studio audience as we record the podcast. Plus ride shotgun alongside your favorite childhood heroes for live watch alongs, Q and A's and other interactive experiences every single month. Come on now, see for yourself what thousands of other wrestling fans from around the world have discovered that adfreeshows.com is the best value in wrestling. Check it out today. And Hey, when you do the first week is completely free at freeshows.com. <laughs>